Chapters 15 and 16 of War and Women by Mrs. St. Clair Stobart. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 15 Two of the patients were Turks. These were, when first admitted, very nervous. One of them, looking round cautiously, whispered timorously to the nurse, When are they going to kill me? Though the question was capable of an alternative interpretation, we took it as an inference of the treatment likely to be bestowed by his own nation on his enemies. But he soon became friendly and later played games of cards with his wardmates quite happily. And from that first night any doubt which may have ever existed in my mind as to the wisdom of allowing British women to nurse and doctor Bulgarian and Turkish soldiers was dispelled. The men, both Turks and Bulgarians, gratefully acknowledged that never before had they been so well or so carefully tended. Whilst our own doctors and nurses declared that, amongst the many whom they had treated at home, no patients had ever shown greater courtesy, chivalry, and delicacy than was shown by these Balkan peasant soldiers. The following day a further contingent of wounded was admitted, and I was fortunate in being able to find, a few yards farther down the street, another house which was empty and unoccupied except for waif and stray soldiers. It was therefore immediately annexed and cleaned, mattresses were placed upon the floor of the four good-sized rooms, and the house was thenceforth used as an overflow hospital for the less serious cases. The theatre already looked very neat and businesslike. It had been fitted with an operating table and a couple of instrument tables made by two slow-handed old Bulgarian carpenters who were commandeered for our service, and who, it must be confessed, worked only under compulsion. But our own staff could not now be spared for outside work, and there were many carpentering jobs which were essential for the comfort of the patients. The question of ventilation of the wards was a crucial one. The soldiers had an ingrained horror of fresh air, and determinedly closed every window or door immediately the nurses' backs were turned. Remembering how I had adversely criticized the atmosphere in some of the other hospitals I had visited, I made up my mind that something drastic should be done. This resolution was brought to a climax on the second day, when a particularly granginous smelling wound was being dressed. The patients had, as usual, remonstrated at the open windows, and for the moment, while the dressing was going on, these had all been closed. I therefore opened one of the sash windows twelve inches at the bottom, summoned the carpenters, showed them a plank which I had measured and sawn, and told them to nail this across the opening, to shut out the air, and to do the same to all the windows of all the rooms in all the houses. It is, of course, a well-known plan— but the soldiers, unaware that ventilation was secured by the free passage of air between the upper and lower sashes, imagined that the piece of wood had been thoughtfully nailed across to keep out draughts, and they were gratified. In any case, they could no longer shut the windows, and my object was attained. Unfortunately, I found that some of the windows in some of the rooms were constructed on a different plan, and the little ruse seemed frustrated. For half a moment when I discovered this, I was checkmated. But a suggestive broom with a nice long handle stood near, and, after sending someone to make sure that there was nobody in the street below, I swept the cobwebs from the upper panes and the broom clumsily went through the glass. Glaziers, a particularly patriotic class, were of course all at the front, so those windows, wasn't it tiresome, never could get mended. But the question of sanitation was to me of most serious concern. It is impossible here to describe in detail the difficulties which had to be conquered. Turkish sanitary arrangements, when seen for the first time, are under any circumstances enough to make curled hair stand on end. 
but commonplace horror was intensified by the fact that we were housing seventy to eighty people in houses intended for the accommodation of a couple of dozen. There were no drains, but a thoughtfully planned pipe carried the excretia from upstairs, past the bedroom windows, down the wall of the house to a cesspool into which you could step from the dining-room window. For it lay snugly just alongside and underneath, and was only partially covered with rotten planks left loose purposely for convenience in removal. New cesspools had occasionally to be dug, and as this was not a job for which there was overdue competition amongst the soldier orderlies, nor one which they understood, it was necessary to stand over them and direct them as to the length and breadth and direction of the channels, etc., and face the typhoid foe as they themselves would face the Turk. But the discipline was, as I told myself, wholesome, even though that word were not strictly applicable to the process. All situations are interesting if you can either feel their significance or see their humor. When significance and humor both stare you in the face, life is a regalement. But in addition to cesspools, trenches had of course to be dug in the small backyards for kitchen refuse, and dirty water and other purposes. The orderlies were unaccustomed to so many invidious distinctions, and constant supervision was therefore necessary. This was the more important because all refuse carts and scavengers were at the front, and one was obliged, literally, to keep one's own sty clean. The disposal of soil dressings was also for the first few days a little troublesome, as they would not burn in the open trenches during the rain, and in any case the yard was too small and the odor too noxious for the process, so near the house, to be desirable but I obtained leave to build a brick incinerator on a piece of enclosed vacant land a little farther down the street, and this considerably relieved matters. For the first fortnight it was impossible to leave the hospital even for a quarter of an hour. There was more than enough to do in organization and in coordination of the various departments, which were all understaffed for the work in hand. It was necessary also to be on the spot in case of eventualities. The arrival of new cases necessitated nearly every day readjustment of the wards. The more seriously wounded must be given beds in the main blocks, whilst the less serious cases would be sent to Block C as convalescents, or possibly to be put on the list for return, either to their homes in Bulgaria or to the front. Very soon, too, a fourth hospital house became necessary, and for a time we were housing, feeding, and treating 92 inpatients in addition to the outpatients. This was as many as the staff could undertake, for unfortunately most of them, myself excepted, succumbed to slight attacks of fever, similar in character to what used to be known as low fever, and were in turn incapacitated for a week or ten days at a time. But their illnesses were thoughtfully arranged to take place in succession, and as more than two were never at any given time hors de combat, the work was at no moment disorganized. The authorities had kindly put at my disposal a young Bulgarian student to act as secretary. He was in normal times newspaper correspondent at St. Petersburg, and talked French. For the names and regimental numbers of the sick and wounded, together with the nature of the wounds or sickness, had to be registered for official purposes. Also, notification and lists had to be made of those who were sufficiently recovered to be sent again to the front, and of convalescents who could be returned to their homes. All this, together with any official correspondence which might be necessary, was of course conducted in the Bulgarian language, of which the letters are written like the Russian in Cyrillic characters, a mischievous invention of Cyril and Methodius in the ninth century. The Bulgarian language is not difficult to learn, 
but there was no time just then for mastering linguistic technicalities. Besides, if you learnt the Bulgarian, or indeed any other human language, you weren't much forwarder in Thrace. It only prolonged the agony of inarticulation. I, once, for instance, addressed in my best Bulgarian, a woman who, clothed in the garments of a Bulgarian peasant, was standing near me in the shop. In response, she turned her head away. Much disappointed, I looked to the shopkeeper for an explanation. He then told me, in French, that this woman, though she always dressed like a Bulgarian, was really a Greek, but that she could speak only Turkish. Concentrated essence of Tower of Babel, I muttered in despair as I left the shop. Amongst other duties one had in the office to sign all the requisition orders for meat, bread, vegetables, firewood or other necessaries, and be at hand in case of emergencies. The question of the safe arrival in time for the men's dinner of the bread and meat and vegetables caused every day moments of dramatic tension. On occasions when dinner time had come and some important ingredient of the dinner was still delaying, it was comforting to the cook to have someone to come to who was supposed to be able to do something. There wasn't really anything to be done on such occasions. But time passes quicker if something is apparently in operation and one could flutter wings and fly around and send messengers dashing in all directions. Sometimes, if things looked extra desperate, and a day of fasting seemed imminent, I would go round the wards with sticks of chocolate, which had been presented to the Corps, and remind the soldiers that there happened to be a war going on outside, and that little inconveniences of that nature had a tendency to make bullocks and sheep a little slow on trek and bakers, who were all working under military regime, a little casual in their routine, and by that time the food would have arrived, the dinner would be ready, and the reputation of the hospital saved. But as a rule all went on oiled wheels, though shopping was a little impeded by a somewhat unusual concatenation of circumstances. Kirk Kilis is a tiny town with only about half a mile of shopping area available, even before the war. But within this small area most of the previously existing shops were now closed, because their Turkish owners had fled. Whilst of those still open, some were kept by Greeks, some by Bulgarians, some by Jews of various nationalities, and some few again by Turks. With the result that in every week there were at least three Sundays, three separate days, that is, on which either the Mohammedan or the Jewish or the Christian shops would be closed. But further, as each religion had, of course, in addition, special to its church, its own fast days, on which days also its shops would be shut, and as no shop was ever open between twelve and two, or before nine or after four, when it was dusk and respectable people were supposed to be indoors, shopping in Kirk Calice was somewhat of a losing hazard, and required for successful achievement not only memory and patience and linguistic accomplishments, but knowledge of ecclesiastical lore. In theory these difficulties may appear formidable, but in practice they were not important owing to the fact that nothing that you ever wanted was ever contained in any of the shops, and on the whole it saved time and other things to assume, with polite euphemism, that today the shops were shut. As time wore on, a few more shops were opened, and a few commodities such as sugar, though not necessarily for public sale, put in an appearance. One day Penka, one of our girl interpreters, came in with the good news that in one of the shops there was now a little sugar. Should we like some jam to be made? There was no fruit, either fresh or dried, but one of the shopkeepers had some dried rose leaves, and he would make us some jam out of these. And this romantic and excellent preserve was, for the short time that it lasted, 
a most welcome substitute for beef dripping on brown bread. End of chapter 15 Chapter 16 It would no doubt have been better for the peace of mind of our staff if we could have adopted the same euphemistic attitude towards the post office that we adopted towards the shops, and have assumed that it, too, was permanently closed. I was personally not much worried, as I had arranged to have no letters forwarded from home. I could not in any case have deserted my work, and I did not want to be enervated by external worries. But those who were expecting to hear from home two or three times a week, and who knew that letters and parcels were being regularly dispatched, were naturally at first each day full of expectation. If there was a post office in working order, the hope that letters might be received was reasonable until you had peeped behind the scenes. And then the wonder was that anything should ever be received at all. There was no delivery of letters. You were supposed to call for the post. The office was a good building which had been used till the Bulgarian occupation of Kirkkilis as post office by the Turks. The debris of the old Turkish office, torn up postal orders, letters of credit, old account books, still littered the street and pavement just outside, ankle-deep. Inside, a brand-new Bulgarian post office staff was in charge. Their procedure was as follows. During the few hours of the postal working day, a certain number, very limited number, of mailbags would be dealt with, and if you were fortunate enough to enter the post office at a moment when a bag containing letters for yourself was being sorted, you stood a chance of being able, if you were agile, to snatch them and make off with them. But the sorters were new to their job, and in some cases could only read the Bulgarian Cyrillic characters. Letters addressed, therefore, in the old-fashioned Latin type, stood small chance of being recognized and identified. But as it was further impossible within the few working hours available each day, nine to twelve and two to six, to deal with all the bags and arrears of bags that arrived in a single day, the sorters had an ingenious method of treatment. They would sort out as many letters from as many bags as they could get through without worrying themselves, and then if a post bag was not emptied when closing time came, so much the worse for that post bag. It had lost its chance and was thenceforth banished to a dark and uninhabited back room. A new day dealt with new bags, and a sportive element of chance thus enveloped all communication from the outer world. Sometimes, however, and these were gala days, Jay, who was post-courier and treasurer for the Corps, would be allowed to have a sacred half-hour amongst the dead in that abandoned back room, and from amongst the masses of literary debris which strewed the floor would extract epistolary trophies of ancient date from the old country and emerge triumphant. Outgoing letters and telegrams had, of course, to run the gauntlet of the censor. This meant sometimes hours of waiting in the long queue till it was your turn to present your letter and give details of the contents of the communication. Here also, ignorance on the part of some of the officials of any language but the Bulgarian had a restraining influence on the output. For the censor would only pass letters and telegrams that were written in a language which he could understand and in a calligraphy which he could read. This latter condition irrevocably precluded me during my sojourn in the Balkans from communicating with my friends. I bore this with resignation on the assumption that I could in emergency communicate with them by means of the non-committal telegram. But here again I was checkmate, for the postal authorities refused to send cables to countries of which they had never heard, and as the Bulgarian ignorance of general geography is almost as profound as the British ignorance of Balkan geography, 
My only method of communicating with, for instance, British Columbia and Nigeria was by cable via friends in London. But even when letters did eventuate, the news contained in them seemed strangely insipid. Accounts of motor drives over flawless macadam roads, of dinner parties at which, as you knew, course after course of every delicacy in season or out of season would have been automatically handed round, and have been probably, for the most part, horrible thought, as automatically refused. How dull seemed the alternative between champagne and claret, compared to the choice between water or no drink at all, or between impure water and nothing. And with this we were sometimes threatened. For our drinking water was obtained from a well in a house a few doors farther down the street, the water in the pumps in our own yards being obviously contaminated and unusable for any purpose. But one evening the orderly, who had gone as usual to fetch water, did not return, and there was no water to fill the kettles and the cooking pots. A hunt was instituted, and presently Kuko was found squatting composedly on the floor in one of the wards, warming his hands at the stove. An interpreter was fetched, and Kuko was asked why he had not done his duty and brought the water as usual to the kitchen. Did he not know that water was needed to cook the soldiers' dinner? He looked up in innocent surprise. I could not bring water, the door was locked and there was no key. It was also sealed, but... And he looked into the comforting stove again. Perhaps tomorrow the door will be open. The door was open tomorrow, but it was not opened by warming our hands at the stove. The door did not open by itself. The history of the well and of the house and of its owner had immediately to be ascertained. It was found that the owner had, for political reasons, been expelled last night by the government who had then taken the keys and sealed the house. Our lieutenant had then to be dispatched, post-haste, to the commandant to ask for leave to have the keys in our own possession. This was eventually granted, but in the meantime a temporary water supply had to be discovered. We were fortunate in finding a well in another street not too far away, and this little difficulty vanished. But, in addition to the superintendence of innumerable details and adjustment of minor difficulties such as this, it was necessary to be on the spot also to receive the various visitors, generals, medical directors, inspectors, and officials of all kinds who took the closest interest in our work. General Dragunov, the King's Chamberlain, honored us on several occasions with a visit, and reported to King Ferdinand in flattering terms upon our improvised hospital. Madame Daneff, wife of the minister who was subsequently delegate at the peace conference in London, also came to see us and later, at Christmas time, gave us a welcome present of some bottles of wine. Dr. Kiranov, when he returned from Chachalja, was of course specially interested in coming often to witness, as he kindly put it, the justification of his faith. He, together with his able and kindly assistant, Dr. Ivanov, and our old friends, the British and American and Italian attachés, were often welcome to our tea-table. I am never likely to forget those teas. Amongst the many various duties which fell to my lot as directress of the Women's Convoy Corps Hospital at Kirk Calice, I found none so difficult to manipulate, in accordance with any standard of success, as those five o'clock sit-down teas with staff and visitors in our mephitic little dining-room. For the only chance of diverting the nostrils of our visitors from the pungent essence of cesspool with which our refectory was redolent was to rivet the attention of the guests upon the conversation— but to maintain this at a sufficiently absorbing degree of brilliancy was not easy. 
With the exception of Colonel Lyon, the British attaché, who talked good French, English officers, you could take for granted, would speak no language but their own. Of the Bulgarian officers, some could speak, in addition to their own, only French, others only German, others again only Bulgarian, whilst an occasional Greek friend or a plenipotentiary from the Russian hospital would emit a hopscotch of all the combined languages of Europe. And it was a juggler's feat to keep these different language balls all flying at once. If one ball dropped, sniff, sniff, all round the table would, I knew, be chorused by inquisitive noses, which unfortunately all sniffed in Esperanto. I was thankful after the armistice had been declared, and the scrimmage of outpatients awaiting in the hall their turn for treatment in the surgery was less, when we were able to abandon our horrid little stink-hole and take our meals in the screened-off portion of the entrance hall. End of chapter 16